time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Have an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Uh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. COVID-19 is the biggest health crisis in our lifetime. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals to stop it, but we need your help. Even if you don't feel sick, you could be carrying it. And just one person with the virus can infect another 40, who then infect thousands more. So I've issued an executive order requiring everyone to stay home to help limit the spread of the virus. Let's protect the people we love. Stay home and stay safe. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. As we roll into the second hour of our three-hour tour, we're going to turn our uh, conversation to uh, the recent Supreme Court uh, rulings on a or ruling uh, on abortion, and uh, and and some other interesting uh, legal history with regard to the abortion debate and joining me uh, for that conversation by phone is a legal historian and uh, professor of law at Florida State University and um, probably one of the world's leading authorities on the legal history of the American abortion debate. She joins me as I said by phone. Her name is Mary Ziegler. Mary welcome to the show. Thanks Tom. Thanks for having me. Um, how much of a of a left turn at Albuquerque was the recent Supreme Court decision um, with regard <laughs> to uh, the was it the Louisiana law that they uh, struck down? Yeah, it was. I mean, it wasn't that much of a left turn. I think that uh, people who are not paying close attention will take away from this Supreme Court turn that John Roberts you know, was a closet liberal and is now going to join his liberal colleagues fairly often. Or at the very least, he's the new Kennedy. Exactly. And I think, (laughs) I mean, that's true in the sense that he's a swing justice, but it's it's not true in the sense that um, he's going to be a kind of reliable swing vote on abortion. Um, he, He did join his liberal colleagues in striking down that Louisiana law, but in doing it, he completely upended the rules that apply to abortion laws and made it much easier for legislators going forward to pass new restrictions. So if there's a, a new Kennedy in town, he's definitely more conservative than the original. Um, but the thing about Chief Justice Roberts that I don't think a lot of people were expecting um, was mm-hmm. that he would be uh, such an institutionalist that Mm -hmm. he would be less likely to want to overturn previous Supreme Court rulings. Um, And and I I think a lot of people thought that uh, 
that the debate over abortion was headed in a very different direction, and, and he seems to have stemmed that a little. Right. I think um, Roberts is an institutionalist, and I think some of that is absolutely sincere. I think he cares a lot about um, not only the Supreme Court's legacy, but his legacy. Um, he's also, and this is kind of what makes him a wild card, he's also quite conservative, um, and he's quite conservative on abortion in particular. So I think we can safely predict that Roberts is not going to do anything with abortion rights that will be a kind of big, splashy overturning of Roe v. Wade. And we saw lots of legislators in states like Alabama and Georgia, um, and even you know Michigan up to a point, trying to get that result from the Supreme Court, a sort of big, fast overruling of Roe v. Wade. And it seems pretty obvious that Roberts is not on board for that. At the same time, he seems open to something more kind of stealth when it comes to unraveling abortion rights. I don't think he's, you know, particularly interested or convinced that there are abortion rights to begin with. So I think what happens next is is really a function of strategy, right? And whether people who are writing abortion restrictions can find a way to do it that convinces him that there won't be damage to the court's reputation or if they're not really up to that task. Well, let's let's talk about that, Mary. Are there in fact abortion rights and and what can we attribute that to because it's been what not, since 1973 when mm-hmm. Roe v. Wade was passed, and that became the law of the land. And now that is our understanding of um, what abortion rights are. Um, mm-hmm. Does the, the right to abortion exist? And, and are we seeing a country that, in, in the face of new information about when life begins, that's shifting that's hard to say. So I think on the first question, um, the right to abortion isn't found in the text or history of the Constitution. So in that way, um, that was always a sort of the weak point of Roe v. Wade. The tricky thing, I think, for courts is that that's also true of the right for married people to use contraception or the right for anyone to marry or the right for parents to have children. I mean, there's basically lots and lots of rights that now people think exist that aren't in the text and history of the Constitution. So I think the challenging thing for the courts is how, you know, do you recognize any of those rights without being activist, but also, you know, recognize that almost everybody thinks that there are rights like that. I mean, not necessarily abortion, which is obviously controversial, but some of the other ones that I mentioned. In terms of whether people are changing their minds, that's really tricky. I mean, my general sense is that uh, no, in the sense that people in America have never been at least if you look at polling data, particularly pro-life or pro-choice, they've been somewhere in the middle. Um, most Americans don't seem to want there to be outright bans on abortion, but nor do they seem to want broad access to abortion. They seem to want sort of legality and lots of regulation, which is, of course, not what either major political party is really selling. It's, it's kind of what we actually have with the Supreme Court right now and probably the direction we're going under Roberts. But... It's, uh, it's always been um, a situation where, you know, the American public is not in step with political parties, which I guess is, you know, <laughs> not that surprising because that's probably true in lots of domains, but it's definitely true in abortion, too. Yeah, I can't, I can't remember uh, the reporter's name, um, but uh, he, he said that, that the, um, 
largest political party uh, in the United States was the undecided vote. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. And I think that this has been, I mean, there, there are definitely Americans who will assign themselves into kind of pro-choice or pro-life categories, but if you dig into what they actually think, they don't really feel comfortable with what the organized pro-life or pro-choice movements are saying because their opinions kind of land them somewhere in the middle. And it's, it's sad that American politics function in such a way that most of those voters can be ignored. Has it, has, has it been that much of a divide throughout the history of the debate? Um, more or less, yes. Um, so n not entirely. So abortion in America um, was more legal in the 19th century. It was legal uh, usually until quickening, which is the point when um, fetal movement could be detected. Then it was broadly criminalized sort of late 19th century. And there wasn't that much debate for until really the 1950s, 1960s. But once there became, uh, began a kind of movement to reform criminal abortion laws, there have been really deep divides about the issue ever since. And so I think that's kind of the bad news for people who are hoping that overruling Roe v. Wade would kind of restore some kind of sanity to the debate. It, it, things were pretty insane before Roe v. Wade. Um, and so I don't think... I think the kind of fracture in American society that abortion has produced you know, predated the Supreme Court getting involved and would probably continue even if Roe was gone. And, and about Roe, my, my sort of impression of the, the Roe v. Wade decision is that it attempted in part in that ruling to set a a um, a time when life began mm -hmm. based on our understanding at the time but that right. understanding is changing for people does that change oh, yeah. the validity of the decision and and does it put Roe v Wade uh, up for scrutiny I think potentially yes I mean certainly we didn't know as much about um, fetal life in 1973 as we do now. Um, and also, I think probably more importantly, that information wasn't as widely available, right? Pretty much everybody has seen an ultrasound image now, and that was not common or as common in the 70s. Um, I think the tricky thing is that while Roe v. Wade kind of hung its hat on these questions about science, the law that evolved after that didn't so much. Um, and we're now in the middle, at least in the Supreme Court, this, the middle of this debate about precedent, right? You might have remembered during Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing, there were lots and lots of debate about, you know, what it meant that Brett Kavanaugh said he respected precedent and what exactly is precedent and is Roe v. Wade logical enough to be precedent? And I think that is <laughs> where the debate is headed, which feels probably frustrating to a lot of lay people because it seems so divorced from, to your point, like some of the more scientific, important questions. But that's kind of partially Robert's fault, right? Because Robert's, as an institutionalist, cares a lot about what came before and the court's kind of navigating precedent. The... I, I can't help getting back to this this question of when life begins because 
even <laughs> leading scientists have not zeroed in and, and come together on a clear-cut answer to that question that mm-hmm. that law can be based on. Um, how important is it for the science to be settled? Well, it, it kind of depends on the court's, if you're thinking about what's going to happen to Roe, it kind of depends on what the court is actually being asked to do. If the court is being asked to overrule Roe, the court could say that Roe was wrong for reasons having nothing to do with the science, right? So if the court says, okay, there's no scientific consensus, but we don't think there was a right to abortion anyway because there's nothing in the text or history of the Constitution, it might not matter, right? They might find another path to doing it. I think, by contrast, if what the court is eventually going to be asked to do is recognize a right to life, which would, of course, have a very different outcome, right? It would mean not that states could ban abortion, which would be what would happen if Roe were gone. It would mean that states had to ban abortion to protect a right to life. I think if if that was the argument the court was presented with, then it would be much more important that there would be a consensus on the science because, for the most part, the pro-life movement leans a lot more heavily on science when it's talking about a right to life than when it's talking about Roe being flawed because you don't you don't need those arguments as much to suggest that Roe was problematic. It's it's kind of my impression that the two major political parties switched sides on Roe. Mm-hmm. Did they? Kind of. I mean there were definitely um Catholic lots of Catholic Democrats who were opposed to Roe. Um, Joe Biden was definitely in that group um, for a time. So was Dick Durbin uh, of Illinois. So it, it was, it, as I mentioned, it was predominantly Catholic Democrats. It wasn't all Democrats. And there were conservative Republicans who were opposed to abortion, but there were certainly also um, what, you know, back in the day you would have called Rockefeller Republicans, kind of moderate Republicans who were very... My dad called them, cl- My dad called them cloth coat Republicans. Yeah, my my family would say country club Republicans. Um, so, uh, <laughs> they, they uh, the the logic there, I think, the most prominent being Rockefeller himself, because New York State um, famously was the first state to eliminate all abortion regulations. Um, and then uh, legislators in New York, which of course who were at the time were predominantly Democratic, voted to reinstate abortion regulations. And Governor Rockefeller, who was a Republican, of course, vetoed them. So we've had a pretty significant political party realignment in the sense that I think both, to your point, if there was a party identity before, it was more the opposite of what we see now, but also that there wasn't really a clear party identity before. You know, you, you couldn't predict with 100% certainty what somebody was going to think about abortion by looking at whether they had an R or a D next to their names. Right. Um, you'd have to actually look. Now, you know, you can, I mean, there's, there's exceptions, obviously, but there are very few exceptions. I, I want to talk about the, uh, the impact of uh, COVID-19 on this and some other phases in the, uh, in the history of this. But I have to take a short break, Mary. Can you stand by for mm-hmm. about four minutes and we'll... Yeah, uh, absolutely. Okay, we'll dig down some more with um, Mary Ziegler. And uh, she is... Uh, Uh, one of the leading authorities on the history of the abortion uh, debate in America, and she has a new book on that very subject, and we'll get back into it right after this. 
Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Hi, I'm Dr. Jonay Caldoun. We know that COVID-19 is spreading rapidly across Michigan right now. The most important thing people can do to protect themselves is social distancing. That means unless you are a critical infrastructure worker or going out to get food or medicine for your home, you should be staying at home. Stay home, stay safe, save lives. Most of the music you hear on the Tom Sumner program is provided by local artists. Tune in Fridays at 11 for live music and conversation with some of the area's most talented singers, songwriters, and performers. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe Bai from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zondrick. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. This is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Tom Sumner Program, celebrating the rich talent pool from Flint, Genesee County, and throughout Michigan. In just a little while, you folks are going to have the pleasure not only hearing the songs of the star of the program and all, but you're also going to have the pleasure of hearing and watching and seeing in person the gentlemen and ladies who have been supplying the fine mu- music behind the curtain this evening. It's a wonderful orchestra. I love to hear them play. But and while you would possibly never even consider counting how many piece- pieces there are in the band, it so happens there are about, I think, 26, 27 members of the orchestra, the stage orchestra here. The only thing is they used to play in Hollywood. And when they were there in Hollywood, California, there were a 65-piece orchestra. And when they were hired by the International Hotel to come here and play, they all got on a a bus, all 65 of them with their instruments and everything, and headed out for Las Vegas. The only thing was, when they crossed the Nevada state line, they had fruit inspection, and this is all slack. Here are some most happy fellas, the four lads for four. Standing on the corner, watching all the Fords go by. Standing on the corner, giving all the Fords the Thunderbird's kissing cousin Get in a Ford Get Ford a try So don't be 
This is Jill Stein, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, my my guest this hour is uh, a legal historian and professor of law at Florida State University with a new book out. Uh, let me make sure I've got the, the title right. Abortion and the Law in America. And uh, she joins me by phone, Mary Ziegler. Mary, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Yeah, thanks, Tom. No problem. Um, I, I mentioned COVID-19 as if we don't hear enough about COVID-19 these days. Um, but <laughs> is it is it having an impact on this this notion of um, abortion being elective surgery? It, it has. I mean, it sort of stopped for the moment because for the most part, um, you saw very Republican states um, banning abortion, functionally banning abortion during the pandemic um, on the theory that abortion was an elective surgery. And that produced all kinds of lawsuits, some of which looked like they were headed for the Supreme Court. Um, the argument that all these states like Texas and Oklahoma and Arkansas were making was essentially um, not only that abortion was elective, but also that it would use up personal protective equipment that would be needed by hospitals. Um, that was disputed because by abortion providers who said a lot of what they were doing was medication-based abortions that didn't require, you know, surgery and therefore didn't require personal protective equipment. The whole issue for the moment has been kind of put on pause because before the Supreme Court could weigh in, a lot of Republican states, of course, began lifting their stay-at-home orders. Um, so states like Texas and Arkansas didn't, don't have those anymore, and at least not to the same extent. But now that you're starting to see uh, a surge in some of those states, predominantly in the kind of Sun Belt, you might start to see these bans popping up again. And, you know, no one knows really what would happen in terms of um, what that would mean for Roe v. Wade if that, in fact, uh, were the case. And a lot of people have argued that, that abortion laws should be determined by the states. Is that where the fight was before the Supreme Court took up Roe v. Wade? It was, yeah. So um, each state could set its own policy. Um, and so uh, at the time, um, very few states had uh, pretty broad access to abortion, in part because the status quo going in had been lots of, uh, pretty much everyone had criminalized uh, abortion. Um, that was changing, so there were a good number of states that allowed abortion under limited circumstances and a handful that allowed abortion under pretty much any circumstance. I think if Roe were to be overturned now, um, you'd expect even more of a patchwork, so you'd expect you know, very liberal or progressive states to you know, allow abortion pretty much throughout pregnancy and also probably have uh, taxpayer funding for abortion, you'd expect to see very conservative states banning all abortion and maybe including in the category abortion things that are that uh, ab abortion opponents would consider abortifacient drugs like maybe the birth control pill or IUDs. And then you'd expect states that are sort of swing states like Florida where I am or Michigan where you are to land somewhere in the middle because voters tend to be somewhere in the middle in those kinds of places. So 
um, you, we already, ironically, even though Roe is still the law, we already have a patchwork like that that the Supreme Court has sort of signed off on. So it's very different now if you live in Mississippi or if you live in New York um, and you're trying to get an abortion. The, the reality is already very, very different in terms of what the law permits. But, of course, if Roe were gone, those differences would become a lot sharper. And what about the economics um, of this? Um, that has been in recent years, uh, a, a way in, a way to uh, sort of combat um, access to abortion through things like cutting funding to Planned Parenthood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's been, um, well, it's actually, that's been relatively ineffective when it comes to Planned Parenthood, but uh, the Hyde Amendment, which is, of course, the federal law that bans Medicaid reimbursement for abortion, has been um, very effective in limiting abortion access, in part because um, it's always been, well, people with money have always been able to navigate whatever abortion regulations exist. Um, that was true before Roe, it's true now, it will be true, you know, if the Supreme Court overrules Roe. It's, so any restriction that primarily affects low-income people will will have much more of an effect because low-income people don't have the resources necessarily to travel out of state, to stay at hotels, to take time off of work, to pay for childcare, to do all these things that would you would have to do um, to circumvent that kind of rule. Defunding Planned Parenthood is a little bit more complicated because Planned Parenthood has so much money, <laughs> so much private money. Um, and one of the kind of ironic effects of a lot of the abortion laws we've seen pass in the past you know, 20 or 30 years has been the expansion, really, of Planned Parenthood and the elimination of lots of independent abortion clinics that don't have the resources or the lawyers to kind of find a way around these laws. And you see in many communities Planned Parenthood uh, coming into areas that used to have independent abortion clinics and now instead have Planned Parenthood. So Planned Parenthood, because of all the money and resources and really political connections it has, has been able to survive lots of these attacks and I wouldn't be surprised if that continues. And and how does this um, play in the era of uh, the kinds of protests we've seen by Black Lives Matter and other similar uh, organizations or groups? Um, is there is there a racial argument to be made in cutting public dollars out of the equation? There is. Well, one of the the kind of weird features of the abortion debate is that for the most part, both the organized pro-choice and pro-life movements have always been and remain predominantly white. Um, and that's even stranger because a disproportionately high number of black women have abortions. So something about both movements has never, I mean, I'm not, that's not to say there are black people who belong to the pro-life and the pro-choice movement. But I still think there's something about both movements that's been off-putting to non-white people. Um, I think you see both sides using race as an argument pretty often, I think even more often, because last year the Supreme Court kind of punted on a law that banned abortion for reasons of race, sex, and disability selection. And Clarence Thomas wrote an opinion saying essentially that the pro-choice movement had its roots in eugenics. Um, that, you know, like most historical arguments made by non-historians, that was 
you know, kind of sloppy and it's way more complicated than that. But of course, that kind of fueled tit-for-tat accusations, right, where pro-life people were saying, look, this shows that Planned Parenthood has this racist past and potentially this racist present. And then, of course, pro-choice people would find examples of people in the pro-life movement who had been racist and say the pro-life movement was racist. But one way or another, I think, in an era of Black Lives Matter, we're going to be hearing a lot more about whether legal abortion kind of fuels racism in America or undercuts it. Um, at least historically, it seems like black people are not convinced by either of those arguments and think that they're, you know, these are movements being run by people who don't necessarily understand them. But the, I, I would expect to see much more of that in part courtesy of that Clarence Thomas opinion. And, but there, there's definitely an economic issue because as you pointed out, Mary, you know, people with money and resources are going to find access to whatever they want. It's the people yes. that very often are making these decisions for economic reasons that mm-hmm. that will be prevented from having the access that they wanted and and without any recourse. In, in other words, if the, if the scenario is one that, that someone says, I cannot afford to have a child, and mm-hmm. they decide to abort a pregnancy um, mm-hmm. if they're prevented and then forced to have that child there's no guarantee of any financial aid or support in being saddled with that child and does it does it then become almost an unfunded mandate it does yeah and that's I think one of the reasons Tom that's a really good point that I think you do see it being hard for lots of of people of color to find a home in either the pro-choice or pro-life movement, because of course there are many deeply religious um, black and Latinx people in the United States, often more religious, you'd say kind of on average than many white people are. Um, But at the same time, the, the Republican party kind of generally is not in favor of a kind of broader social safety net for low income mothers or children. So while some of those people may in fact themselves be uncomfortable with the idea of abortion, they're also uncomfortable with the idea that the government that wants them to have, you know, a child is not willing to do anything to help them after the child is born. So I think that's been one of the kind of weird quirks of our political alignment. It wasn't always that way, of course, right? There were people who in the kind of earlier more muddled kind of politics of the 70s, there were pro-life and anti-abortion politicians who were, you know, pro-family planning and pro, you know, we need programs for unwed mothers and low-income kids and that sort of thing. But I mean, now with our present-day political alignment, it's pretty hard to imagine that happening. Yeah, the economics of this is is really very complicated because it is... um, while, while some people are saying that, you know, the procedure itself, the abortion procedure, is putting a, a uh, an economic tax on uh, on people, um, having children is much more expensive in the long run. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I, I'm I'm surprised that 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 people that are trying to make this about economics haven't. I, I don't know, align themselves with the notion that maybe it's 
cheaper to have abortions than to have children. Yeah, I mean, I think in part it's hard, I think, partially to make that argument because of this whole eugenics thing has been put on the table. So no one wants to, even pro-choice people don't want to be emphasizing that too much because no one wants to be accused of sort of being anti-child. But I think um, it, it is odd because, of course, the, the pro-life movement is aligned with a party that's a fiscally conservative party um, and doesn't do, you know, or talk about the kind of detail you just mentioned. Is, is What role does religion play in the debate over abortion? I think an increasingly visible role. So it was always true that the pro-life movement got its start in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, and, of course, the pro-life movement became much more uh, diverse than that, both from a religious standpoint well, and that Well, at that time, Roman Catholics were against any form of birth control. Right, exactly. And I, and I think um, one of the things that... So early on in the debate, what you tended to see was the pro-life movement trying very hard to have a secular message, to distance itself from opposition to birth control, to reach out to kind of secular voices, and that worked. Um, then what happened in the 80s was that there was an influx of um, evangelical Protestants, generally conservative evangelical Protestants, who were also opposed to abortion. And over time, uh, partly because you then had more than one faith group in the movement. There were also some Orthodox Jews, some Mormons, um, and some other faith groups. It became much more common to see pro-life people framing their cause as a Christian one, or at least a, a religious one. And that's now, I think, to some degree extended to contraception politics, too. Um, we saw a Supreme Court decision this term on um, the Affordable Care Act, the Obamacare Act's um, contraceptive mandate, which has been you know, in the courts now for however many years. And you, you're beginning to see social conservatives talking about openly, I think, again, about being opposed to contraception as well as to abortion. During the confirmation hearings uh, for um, uh, Gorsuch and uh, Kavanaugh, um, in the wake of those uh, confirmations, there were a lot of people saying that uh, um, the fight to overturn Roe v. Wade was on and that abortion was all but finished. Um, mm -hmm. and, and then some cooler heads uh, said that if that was true, it would be very incremental. Um, is, is it game on in, in the abortion debate it, now? I think it's... it's it still is, but I think John Roberts is not, I mean, John Roberts is his own person, right? I mean, one of the kind of themes of this term is that lots and lots of people thought they could tell John Roberts what to do, right? State legislators thought they could tell John Roberts what to do. Donald Trump thought he could tell John Roberts what to do. And John Roberts' very clear response to that is that he will do what he wants when he feels like it. Um, so I still think that Roberts is highly skeptical of abortion rights. I think he would very much like to find a way to undo abortion rights that would not produce a backlash. But if abortion opponents don't give him one, or if they keep pushing him to go faster than he wants, they can easily blow it. So I think it's not a sure thing that abortion will be gone. Um, and I think Roberts is very much 
um, while I think still a conservative on abortion, is his own person who will not just kind of be bullied into an outcome. So I, I think still, if you were betting, you would bet against abortion rights, but there's a real chance that social conservatives can blow it um, if they go about things the wrong way. But why haven't they um, worked up a, a, a based-in-science strategy? Well, some of them are trying to. Um, so one of the things I think, if you dig into this, is that the, the anti-abortion movement is divided strategically, like very divided strategically. So the more kind of pragmatist groups are often trying to use um, at least not necessarily science, but the idea that when there's scientific uncertainty, legislators should have more room to act, which is a direct response to something we already talked about, which is that, you know, not everybody agrees on this stuff. So some legislators and some anti-abortion activists are saying as long as there's some scientific evidence supporting something, legislators should have more freedom to act. And that's the, the justification for laws, for example, that ban abortion at 20 weeks. Um, it's the justification for laws that ban specific abortion procedures. But there are lots of other uh, anti-abortion activists and legislators who um, don't want to be patient and don't want to wait on John Roberts and want to ban abortion, you know, like right now. And also a lot of those groups invoke science too, right, about when human life begins or when a fetal heartbeat happens, but they're not necessarily concerned with the kind of reception they're going to get in the Supreme Court, um, which, of course, is why there's a rift in the anti-abortion movement, because the, the kind of larger D.C.-based groups worry that those strategies, the more sort of absolute bans, are going to cost them John Roberts' vote for a really long time. Um, and you, you even see, to some degree, Donald Trump worrying about that last year when Alabama uh, in Georgia and states like that were passing laws without exceptions for rape or incest. Trump was sort of pleading <laughs> with state legislators to stop because he thought that would be bad for him and other Republicans at the national level and bad for the national anti-abortion movement. So I think you see a kind of divide as to how patient people are willing to be and also to some extent what people are going for. Like it's probably really good politics in Alabama to ban abortion at fertilization. And you may not really care if that's bad for somebody in Washington, D.C., or bad from the standpoint of John Roberts, if it's good for you and your election chances. Yeah, or even if it gets overturned, as long as you were fighting on the right side. Right, exactly. Then voters will love you for it, even if, you know, it accomplishes nothing at the end of the day. Where are we at now? What, what, um, what strengths and, and weaknesses do both sides have? Well, I think historically, it's always easier if you're trying to get folks in the middle. It's always easier to look like the other people are the extremists and you're the mainstream one. So that's meant historically that if you're winning, you actually have a harder time framing what you want. So, for example, when Roe v. Wade came down, it was actually hard for the pro-choice movement because they were trying to say we want even fewer restrictions, right, which a lot of Americans didn't agree with. Now that people believe abortion rights will be eliminated, you see the opposite happening, right, where you see abortion opponents saying, oh, yeah, we don't need raper incest exceptions. We don't need um, exceptions for, you know, when women's health is threatened, you know, things that also poll really badly. So 
So ironically, because the pro-choice movement is sort of on the back foot and has to defend itself, it's getting, I think it's easier for it to play to positions that hold better, like, you know, abortion should be legal rather than abortion should be unregulated. Um, and it also potentially, given that you might start to see, and you've already seen, but you'll start to see more absolute abortion bans, that's also going to potentially get us into the interesting question of like what we mean by abortion, because there's a debate about what does have an abortifacient effect, whether that applies, for example, to things like fertility treatments, you know, to the birth control pill, things like that, that are also pull badly. So I think it kind of depends on what you're thinking about, right? From the standpoint of who's on the Supreme Court and who's in the White House, the, the pro-life movement's still doing well. But historically, when you do well, it becomes a lot trickier to continue to do well because both movements have positions that tend to be more extreme than what most Americans want. And so when you're in a position as a pro-life or pro-choice person to ask for what you want, it starts to turn people off because people say, oh, I, I don't actually want to ban abortion in cases of rape or incest, that sounds crazy. Or, you know, I don't want to have abortions be legal until birth, that sounds crazy. But when you're losing or on the back foot, like the pro-choice movement is now, you can say, look at those crazy people over there. They want to ban abortion in cases of rape and incest. We're over here, you know, fighting for legality. So um, it, it tends to actually kind of seesaw that way, that when you're winning, it's harder to continue winning. Well, Roe v. Wade attempted to find middle ground by saying abortion beyond a certain point was illegal, before a right. certain point was permissible. Is there is there middle ground to be found now? Um, I don't. It kind of depends on what you mean. There's middle ground to be found if what you're looking at is what most Americans actually think, and it would look something like what you see in purple states like Michigan and Florida, where abortion would be legal but regulated. There is no middle ground if you're thinking about what, you know, deeply pro-choice and pro-life people actually want, because they hold very profound beliefs on this subject that are, you know, irreconcilable. I think there's also common ground um, on issues that should theoretically make abortion less common um, or just issues that would make life easier for mothers and babies in America. It's an embarrassing fact that the U.S. has the highest maternal mortality in the developed world by like a, by a significant margin. Um, it's safer, you know, in much of Eastern Europe to have a baby than it is in the United States. And that's especially true for black women. That's something that I think pro-choice and pro-life people should agree on. There's no nothing about abortion in there. And you should think everyone who's interested in reproduction and politics would care about that. I would think similarly issues like, you know, discriminating against pregnant workers would be something people would agree on. Um, Mary, so I, I would hope there would be common ground. Mary, I need to put a comma there. I have another break coming up, and, and we're technically out of time, but can you stick around and talk for a few more minutes? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, because, I, like I say, you have to stand by for a few minutes while I go to break. My, uh, my guest is uh, the author of a recently published uh, book called Abortion and the Law, in America. Mary Ziegler is uh, 
a professor and uh, legal expert, especially on the history of abortion. And we're going to talk some more with Mary right after we let our broadcast partners at 92.1 FM squeeze a few words in uh, edgewise or do whatever they do when we go to break. If uh, you're streaming the show at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. And then we will uh, continue our conversation with Mary Ziegler when we return. Don't touch that dial, don't click that mouse. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacles that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not, is a major factor in dancing like a retard, may cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them, also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people, and it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. Alcohol may cause pregnancy, and it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as... America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. The interest of goodwill. The Hoffman Beverage Company feels compelled to make this announcement. It's simply this. 
All Hoffman flavors have that happy taste, except sarsaparilla. We might as well come right out with it. We haven't quite hit that happy, carefree note in sarsaparilla. Now, please don't misunderstand us. Our Hoffman sarsaparilla is absolutely dependable. It's trustworthy. It's loyal. And many fine, upstanding citizens love it. But it just isn't what we call happy. You take our Hoffman orange. It's absolutely rollicking. Our lemon is almost giggly. Our black cherry and black raspberry are so bubbling with happiness, they dance in the glass. They all have natural flavor and famous Hoffman study sparkle. We're sorry about Hoffman sarsaparilla. Why isn't it happy? Well, let me ask you, could you be happy if your name this was This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, we continue now with my conversation with one of the world's leading authorities on the legal history of the American abortion debate, Mary Ziegler. Mary, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Mary? Yeah, sorry, I'm still here. I can't oh, okay. myself on mute. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's the perils of the phone in the COVID era, sorry. Gotcha. I, well, I thought I lost you, and that does happen from time to time, so... Um, but but again, thanks for sticking around. I appreciate it. Um, before the break, we were starting to talk about middle ground, and is is there is is there a legal way to create? Um, I I don't know if you'd call it a one size fits all um, law that that would ad- address the. Uh, regulations and and at the same time um allow for the uh for the possibility of abortion well i think one of the things that would be the most productive to do which is probably the absolute last thing politicians are going to do would be to focus on ways to lower the abortion rate because most people who have abortions are not excited about having abortions it's usually a scenario where they didn't want to get pregnant and something went wrong. And so they're, and or making it easier for those people to have children if they find that they're pregnant. Um, So things like the law involving pregnancy discrimination at work, things like maternal mortality, things like programs for low-income families, all of that would help. Um, I think if we're looking for solutions that appeal to pro-life and pro-choice people who feel deeply about that issue, we're not going to find them. And the other problem, of course, which is true, you know, this is an evergreen statement, and the other problem is politicians, because politicians in the United States (laughs) get something out of the fact that we're divided about this. One of the most striking things, if you look at any other country in the developed world, abortion just isn't a political issue the way it is here. And that's not true. It's not the case because there are no religious people elsewhere It's not the case because abortion isn't a difficult issue elsewhere. It's partly because we have politicians who get a lot of votes by talking about abortion. It's it's easy to imagine Donald Trump wouldn't be president if he hadn't been able to promise a Supreme Court that would overturn Roe. So I think the logical solution would be for people on either side of the aisle to think of ways to make it either easier for people to be mothers or easier to avoid pregnancy such that 
you know, we wouldn't have to worry about it as much if we didn't agree on abortion. I remember. But politicians are making hay out of it, you know, and they're probably going to continue to. Many years ago, the Mormon Church did an ad campaign encouraging Mm -hmm. um, young and unwed mothers to consider adoption. Mm Mm-hmm. And I thought it was kind of an effective way of saying, don't get an abortion, do this instead. Mm-hmm. Um, why are we not seeing that, that fight? And, of course, I, I think you've already answered my question because of the politicians who say, you know, we don't want the solution, we, we need the issue. Right. I, I think that's part of it. I think it's also um, dealing with, um, adoption or surrogacy, any situation where you have people giving birth, it can be hard for um, some women to give children up for adoption, even when they don't want to be parents. So a- adoption is, I think, a great solution for lots of people, but it can also be tricky for other people who find themselves kind of not really wanting to be parents, but also feeling emotionally unable to give a child up for adoption. That might be part of it too, but primarily, I think, what, as you were saying, I think politicians need the problem and voters who are pretty um, committed to being pro-life or pro-choice don't want you know the problem to go either they want to really win a hundred percent right they don't want to win 80 percent or something and have the country be better off it's sort of the principle of the thing right so yeah compromise is a dirty word now exactly and and it makes sense too because if you're a single issue voter and you compromise, then you've sort of proven that politicians can disregard you. And that's true, even if the compromise would be something, you know, a lot of voters would like. Now, this is a little off topic, but I have to ask, how does a native of Butte, Montana, end up going to Harvard Law School? <laughs> um, so my, uh, <laughs> my high school temporarily actually lost accreditation. And so my dad, who has grown up in Boston, said, okay, well, I was really freaked out by that because I was not trying to go to high school for four years and then not get a diploma. <laughs> that just sounds like a bad idea. So I, uh, I, then my dad and I looked into it and we found a high school I could go to in Massachusetts, which turned out to be this very fancy high school that sent a lot of people to Harvard. And I did well there. I actually started writing there, which is what I still do. Um, and then went from Harvard to Harvard Law and into what I currently do. But, yeah, there are not a lot of people from Butte, Montana at Harvard. I, I think that's a fair assumption. Yeah, did did, um, did you have Harvard in mind when Boston no, was selected? Really. Why, why Boston and not uh, Chicago or Atlanta or... Well, I, I had family in Boston, and oh, so I had grown up okay. um, going to Boston, you know, in summers, and I was comfortable um, out there. And uh, and so, and no, I mean, I didn't really, I actually didn't think I was going to go to Harvard even when I was applying to colleges, because I thought the people there would be snootier than they turned out to be. Um, <laughs> and uh, I actually was sort of pleasantly surprised during my, my admission interview that the people there seemed pretty down to earth. They kind of, my dad has a theory that sometimes when people are so very, very, very successful, they stop being obnoxious. They sort of stop being insecure and therefore stop being obnoxious. And there was definitely a lot of that at Harvard. People were like, I'm at Harvard. I don't have to try anymore. So um, I, I, I had a good experience. It was, it's, it's a very strange. I think if you're the kind of person who, 
could go to Harvard from Butte, Montana, you never fit in anywhere because you don't fit in in places like Butte because you're used to the world of Harvard, but you don't fit in at Harvard because you grew up in Butte. So there, there's a sort of <laughs> subset of people like that at the Ivy League schools. Well, then that explains how you end up in uh, Santa Rosa Beach. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, I mean, that was just, you can't, you can't live in Florida and not live at the beach. I mean, the way my husband and I were like, there's just no way. Like, if you, if you work at Florida State and you live in Tallahassee, you're just crazy. That doesn't make any sense at all. Well, Mary, it's been an honor and a privilege talking with you. I always give guests an opportunity to uh, let listeners know where they can find out more about uh, what we've been talking about, but about uh, all of your work, all of your writing. Um, do you have a website? I do, yeah. My website is maryrziggler.com. No dots, just my name and my middle initial. And Ziegler is Z as in zebra, I-E-G-L-E-R. Um, and you can find, you know, any interview I've done there or things like op-eds. And um, you can follow me. My Twitter is mary underscore Ziegler FSU. Um, so if you want sort of like what the Supreme Court is doing in layman's language, I tweet about that a lot. Yeah, I have a, a, a regular uh, go-to guy on uh, Supreme Court issues, um, Brendan Beery from Cooley Law over mm-hmm. in Miami, or right. Tampa, rather. And um, I almost sent him an email because I thought he'd be interested in our conversation today, and I may still because it'll be up in the archives later. But uh, But thanks so much for spending this time with me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm happy to help. If there's a, next time the Supreme Court does anything crazy, you know, on abortion, I'm happy to help you and the listeners make sense of it. Well, and I think that's likely. Any any quick comments? <laughs> yeah, <safe>. <laughs> <laughs> any any quick comments on the uh, on the recent nine to, to zero uh, rulings? Just while we're talking about the Supreme Court for a moment, uh, that doesn't well, happen very often fun. these days. Or yeah, does it? I see a lot of seven to two cases that were that. I was more surprised by those. The nine zeros are actually pretty common because at the end of the day, no matter how much trash people talk about talk about the Supreme Court justices, they're judges. They're not politicians. And when the answer is obvious, they'll tell you. You know, they're not going to play politics with it. I think what was more surprising was that some of these um, seven to two decisions that on pretty politically touchy issues like the the birth control mandate, like what's called the, uh, the ministerial exception, which is about um, when religious employers don't have to follow civil rights laws because an employee is a religious employee or doing religious tasks. Those were both a pretty big deal and they wound up 7-2. So I, I think it tells you that there are um, justices in the middle, I think, who like, and I an even bigger deal, that was true of the Trump financial records cases, too. So there are some, even in this highly partisan era, there are some people on the court who are trying to avoid partisanship and really sharply polarized opinions. Um, And you can kind of figure out who they are from looking at the votes, right? Like Justices Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas were the conservatives who tended to be on the island in the 7-2 opinions, and it was often Ruth Bader Ginsburg and uh, Sonia Sotomayor for the more liberal justices, whereas... All the other people were, were sometimes <laughs> in the seven. So um, there, there is, and I think that's one of the things that's sort of nice about the Supreme Court is that the court does try 
not to be political. They don't succeed very often, but they do try, and that, that's kind of a nice, unique feature of American life in an era like this. Well, Mary, we have to end it there, but thanks so much for spending this time with me. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Tom. My pleasure. Okay. That was Mary Ziegler, a legal historian and professor of law at Florida State University. She has a recently published book called Abortion and the Law in America. She is uh, considered one of the uh, leading authorities on the legal history of the American abortion debate. We're going to take a short break, and we're going to shift gears and, uh, and, and celebrate um, Bastille Day in the next hour of our three-hour tour. So we'll uh, break for top-of-the-hour ID, and uh, we'll return with uh, some talk about New Orleans with author Jason Berry. So... Don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. Hi, I'm Alexander Zajic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. 